Well, this week marks the final week in our series on the generous life, and we're going to uh, do one last week here, but let me give you a preview of what's to come here this summer. Uh, when I was a kid, and um, I think you probably had the similar experience, you remember the Gideons used to hand out little New Testaments? Uh, my dad was in the military, and so we would oftentimes, he'd come back from some sort of National Guard duty or Army Reserve training or something, and he would have those little green kind of Army-colored ones, and it would be a little New Testament, kind of a pocket New Testament. I remember the Gideons would tell stories about people where a bullet would get stopped by a Bible in their pocket or something, you these kind of fantastic stories, and they would show you this little tiny Bible. And in the back of the Bible, it was the New Testament, and it always had two Old Testament books that were tied with it. Do you remember this? The New Testament and then Psalms and Proverbs, right? We're always uh, connected with the New Testament for some reason. I, wonder, I always wonder what would happen if it was a different book. What if it was like the New Testament and Malachi? Like what if it was like something like that? What, how that might have been different uh, distribution there. But we're going to do this summer, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Psalms and Proverbs in reverse order. We're going to look at some text from Proverbs. We're going to look at some text from Psalms throughout the summer months. It's kind of a summer series as we, as we go along. And that will begin next week. But this week we're talking about generosity once more. And as we talk about that, today we come to the week where we talk about legacy. And so at this point I need to ask you a question. I'm not your financial advisor. I'm not helping you plan your finances here. But let me ask you this. Have you written your will? Have you spent time writing your last will and testament, what it is that you want to do with all that stuff you've accumulated in life, uh, who you want to hand that on to, who gets to care for your dog after you're gone, <laughs> who gets your favorite carpet or rug. There's stories, uh, I heard a story this past week I was reading online uh, about uh, William Shakespeare and in his will actually he gave his second favorite bed to his wife. I wonder who got his first favorite bed. <laughs> do you have a first favorite bed? <laughs> Well, this morning as we talk about will, if you, haven't, if you haven't done your will or you're thinking about making some changes, let me offer a couple uh, suggestions here uh, that could be helpful in that planning. Uh, a couple uh, from history here. Jack Benny, famed comedian, who died in 1974, he made a provision that after his death that his wife would receive one rose every day for the rest of her life. What a romantic, right? One rose. She lived about eight more years and she got a rose each and every day. Uh, that was delivered to her from a local florist. In 2004, less romantic here, Leona Helmsley. I can just say Leona Helmsley. If you know Leona Helmsley, if you remember her, you know this story is going to have a quite a different approach to it here. She assigned $12 million. $12 million in her will was to be given to her dog. $12 million. The judge later uh, reduced that down to $2 million, but $2 million for a dog. Seeing that I paid about $300 for my dog, I don't know of $2 million. That's a lot of money to give to a dog. Mrs. Helmsley's love, though, of course, for her dog wasn't limited to just her own dog. There's actually, when they're looking at her will, there's a page that talks about some of the goals uh, in that will, what was kind of the mission statement of the will itself. And the New York Times at the time had reported that it said, first goal was to help indigent people, and the second to provide for the care and welfare of dogs. That was listed in there. About a year later, she crossed out indigent people. <laughs> it was just going to care for the welfare of dogs. So a couple uh, suggestions, ideas, the takeaway there um, for how to do our wills. But when we talk about wills, we're talking about our mortality. And at some point, each one of us is going to have our lives come to an end. And the realization of that leads us to a place to think about the future, think about legacy, think about how we uh, leave behind 
uh, a mark, how we make a mark in this world, in the lives of other people? How do we care for our family? How do we support those things that are important to us so that they continue uh, to be spoken to from our own lives, even when our life has come to an end? So this morning, as we look at this idea, I want us to look at this question and consider this throughout uh, our time of pondering the scripture here this morning. What story is your life writing? If you look at your life, and so we talked about writing a will or a last will and testament, but what story is being written by your life? When it comes to the end of your life and your experience of being physically alive here in this world, when we go back to read that story and, the, and to speak that story, to tell that story, what story will be told uh, because of your life? And so we turn our attention to Paul's words here to Timothy because what Paul does for us here in this very short passage is provide for us a picture of how to write a good story for our lives. And he does this by giving us two don'ts, two do's, and a why. All right? Two don'ts, two do's, and a why. Let's talk about the don'ts this morning. John Calvin, when he was observing this text, makes the following uh, reference to a metaphor. He says, for wealthy people, for rich people, there are certain difficulties or troubles that will follow that life. They're so closely related, these are the type of troubles that wealthy people fall into, that they're as close to us as our shadow is to our body. And so you know when you go outside or you step to any light, there's a shadow that's cast from your body. And John Calvin would say, these troubles are so common with the rich and the wealthy that they're like a shadow is to the body. He goes on to say this, he says, our depraved minds allow God's good gifts to become an opportunity for sin. So these two don'ts are a cautionary tale to us to remind us not to take God's good gifts and to turn them into sin. So what possibly could those two don'ts be? The first one is this. You heard this in the text this morning. Don't be haughty. Or you might say this. If you decide to be haughty, you're deciding to be naughty. All right? <laughs> Don't be haughty. All right? Don't be haughty. That's the first thing that Paul says uh, to those who are rich in this world. He says, Timothy, tell them not to be haughty. Now, you might be going... I don't use the word haughty. That word's not in my vocabulary. Let me give you some other words here then. We could just as easily say, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't be high-minded. Don't look down upon other people. In the ancient world as it is today in our own experience, it's not uncommon to find those who have great wealth or any level of wealth. You don't even have to have great wealth, but any kind of wealth to look down on those who do not, to look down on the poor. It's very easy for us uh, to go into a kind of an elitist-type inclination, to think that we've somehow earned it, that we've earned the place of privilege or the place where we stand, that our position was from our own efforts alone, and that if others would only work harder, that they might too experience the joy that we've experienced in life. And Paul's caution here to us is don't go there. Don't become arrogant and proud and haughty in your life, but rather take on a different kind of posture. And he'll get to that posture here in a moment. One of the things that as I, as I think about this idea of being arrogant, I see that in my own life. I see places where I might dismiss other people quickly. And I'm a pastor. I read the Bible all the time. I'm supposed to teach the Bible, but I can see how that creeps into my own life, my own experience where I think that I've got it together, and if only others would follow my example. 
Paul reminds us not to go there. How refreshing it is for us as we read through Scripture to come to a quick recognition, and this undoes our whole sense of being proud and arrogant, when we recognize that who we are, that our own worth, is not based on our pocketbook. It's not based on your bank account. But rather, in God's eyes, you, like each person that walks this planet, displays what's called the Imago Dei, that there's a sense that the image of God is on us in such a way that there is a sense of worth that exists because of our Creator's love for us. And so for us to step into a place to not love others is a, is a, a change or a, a movement in the wrong direction. It's a place where we begin to embrace an idea that's not an idea at all. God holds us as the beloved. And so for us to be haughty is an attempt for us to dismiss God's beloved. Well, that's one don't. (laughs) That's a heavy one. What's the second don't? Paul offers another caution here. He says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, if you're here this morning, you probably don't need me to tell you uh, about the uncertainty of riches particularly if you ever had an account with Washington Mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Or any number of banks that failed uh, not too long ago. Riches aren't certain. My wife and I got married in in 2007. We bought our first home in 2008. In 2009, about a third of the value was gone to that home. We moved to Connecticut in 2014. We sold the home late that year. And we had not gotten back to the break-even point. We had to write a check in order to sell the house. (laughs) Wealth is uncertain. There's no certainties when it comes to wealth. There's no certainty there. And so for us not to put uh, that kind of burden onto the wealth itself, to claim that it's going to be there when it's not oftentimes there. But we forget that. We forget that wealth is not secure. Which is silly because when you think about money and riches... We know inherently that it's not secure. Because the more you get, the bigger the safe, the bigger the security system that you have to install to protect it. Because we know wealth by itself is not secure. And so it has to be protected. Again, Paul's going to turn our attention here to those of great wealth to go, don't put your security in those things. It's not a secure source. It's not a firm foundation. So that's the two don'ts. Don't be haughty. Don't look to wealth for your security. So what are the two do's? Well, you won't be surprised to hear this. They're related to the two don'ts in reverse order. If we're not to put our our faith, our hope, our security in the insecurity of wealth, what do we put our faith and hope into? It says, set your hope on God, who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. You see that here in our text. That's a contrast. That's a contrast to setting your hope on wealth and riches. We set our hope on God. And of course, we hear in that Jesus' own words to his disciples. When they are in a place where they are being taught, where they're being encouraged not to worry, uh, Jesus says, put your hope in the one who provides for you, the one who actually gives good gifts uh, to God's people. And as we look at that, as we consider what that means, uh, to know this, and this is what Paul says here, God who richly provides for us with everything for our enjoyment. When our orientation to life turns to that, when your attention goes to that place, 
and you start to see your identity and who you are and what God has for you from that framework, how can you be haughty? How can you be arrogant? How could you look to anything else for security when you have this kind of thing? When this is the one who is for you and this is what God has for you. To see God as the source. To see God as the one who provides. At the same time, it's not limited, this type of viewing of life and thinking about uh, who we are to be and how we set our hope on God. It's not just for times of calamity. How often our lives... Uh, become these quick what they call arrow prayers right where you're kind of like you're in a struggle and you're in the moment of crisis your marriage is is struggling you're struggling with a child uh, you're struggling with a neighbor there's something going on at work Uh, maybe there's a job issue or maybe it's just about a money issue and you quickly pull out your satchel of arrows right and you start firing prayers off as quick as you can let me just keep releasing these as fast as I can in hopes that God's going to respond But the scripture here is not one for us to say just in calamity. It's not just in those those moments of despair and struggle. But God's provision is for us at all times. That God calls you God's beloved in all seasons, no matter what's to come. And so we're to set our sights on the one who gives provisions in each and every one of those seasons. And then there's the second to do, which is again connected to the don'ts. We're not to be haughty, we're not to be arrogant, we're not to find security uh, in the riches, but rather look to God, then what type of response can we have? What type of actions are we supposed to be taking as God's people? Here's what Paul says. Do good, rich in good works, generous, and be ready to share. If we had a summary statement for this entire series on the generous life, We said, how do you live the generous life in all your relationships, in all your encounters, and when you talk about your money and all the things that God has given you and has given you a charge over to be responsible for, if you could do those four things in all those areas, you would be living the generous life. If you were set to do good, if you were rich in good works, if you were generous, and if you were ready to share, you would be living that generous life. That's embodying it. That's what it means to be a generous person. In church history, oftentimes, there's a misreading of, of church history, which says that the church, by and large, was exclusively uh, poor. That poor people were the only ones who were part of the church and the church's ministry from the beginning. And that's a misreading of church history. The beauty of the church is that the expression, even from early on, is that people from all walks of life came together in worship of Jesus Christ. And that's the surprising part. If it was just poor people that came, you might say, oh, well, they're just doing that because they're trying to get something they don't have in this world. But the recognition that people from every single walk of life would come together and be in the same space, people that were rich in this world, who had title, who had land, who had great wealth, who would be seated side by side breaking bread with people who were called slaves. And together they gave their allegiance to Christ. That's the radical part about the church. And here we see in this text that Paul says to Timothy not to talk to people who don't have wealth and share these things, but rather remind those people who have wealth. It assumes that they're going to be part of the church. So how does that connect with us? Well, we in this country, 
are rich. You've traveled at all around the world. You can see there's a lot of things that we have um, because of our nation's economy and the wealth of this nation. There are things we benefit from greatly here in this country. At the same time, even amongst ourselves, there are folks in our community here in this congregation as well as our larger community that have much more than others in the community. We see that as well. But for each one of us, wealthy as we are, who have been given great wealth, we've also been given great responsibility. And that responsibility is to be ones who live in this way, who live as ones who do good, who are rich in good works, who are generous, who are ready to share, no matter how much each one of us has. And why do we do that? Remember two don'ts, two do's, and a why? Why do we do that? It's a legacy thing. It's a legacy thing. Paul says this, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future so they may take hold of life that really is life. Remember Jesus in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. God's desire for you and for me, God's desire for this community and for this world is that we might know the life that God provides. And by living into this generosity, this, this way of being a generous person, we respond to God's great love for us, God's own generous, gracious gift uh, to us. And when we do, we start to experience bit by bit, more and more, what God has planned for creation. And that's for us to flourish, for us to enjoy and to thrive, to see love abound, to see grace abound in our communities and in our world. I want to close with a story here because it's Memorial Day weekend that taps into this idea of legacy. This past week I was doing some reading about some of the different uh, precursors to what we call Memorial Day. And as, as we celebrate and commemorate that day tomorrow, uh, a serious day for our, for our culture, our communities, for our society, one, one which we remember those uh, who lost their lives in military service. And so it indeed is a day where we remember um, the sacrifice that was made uh, by folks, the commitment that they showed, uh, and what they gave, the ultimate sacrifice of their own lives. But as I was reading about some of these precursors to our modern-day Memorial Day, one stuck out to me from the spring of 1865. 1865, where African Americans, most of them were former slaves, gathered in Charleston, South Carolina, where they were holding memorials to honor fallen Union soldiers. Remember that, that time in history, the Confederate Army abandons Charleston, they give it up to the Union, and so at that point, uh, these, soul, these, these folks here are, are there and they're celebrating, they're holding all kinds of parades and celebrations to honor uh, those who had died, those who were Union soldiers who had died in that battle against slavery, that struggle against slavery. The largest gathering was held on May 1st, and it was quite a gathering. So in Charleston, uh, what had happened is in the last few years of the, war, of the war, the Confederates converted what was known as the Washington Race Course and Jockey Club. They turned that into an outdoor prison. And so they turned this giant race course and this, these jockey grounds, they turned it into this giant outdoor prison. And due to the horrible conditions of that prison, somewhere in the neighborhood of 257 Union uh, soldiers died uh, because of disease and were hastily buried behind the grandstands. And so they just quickly dug these mass graves and buried the bodies there. But they had this 257 uh, soldiers who were all buried there. 
Well, again, after the Confederates evacuate the city, these, uh, a bunch of black workers, African-Americans, come together, and they come back there, and they, they dig up the bodies, and they rebury them properly. They actually convert the middle of the, the race course. They turn it into a cemetery for these Union soldiers. They put up a white picket fence, or a whitewashed picket fence around the entire cemetery. And then they put up an archway, an entry into that cemetery. And there on the archway it said, martyrs, and think about this, this is at a racetrack. And think about history and what's going on here. They wrote, martyrs of the race course. Again, speaking to that struggle. And then they held a celebration. And what a celebration it was. They organized a parade of 10,000 people. 10,000 people gathered on that racetrack that day and marched, most of them African-American, marched around the racetrack in honor of those fallen Union soldiers, many of them unnamed, unknown, but their sacrifice was well known. Here's what the descriptions of the day say. It says that there were thousands of women who were walking, carrying crosses, carrying flowers, carrying wreaths. And behind the women, there were thousands of men all marching in cadence on that day. And joined with them were groups of Union soldiers marching alongside of them as they marched along. And this procession of 10,000 people at the very front of that parade were 3,000 children. 3,000 children marching at the head of that parade, carrying armfuls of roses as they marched along. And they sang the, union, the popular Union song at the time, John Brown's Body. You know John Brown's Body? Do you know that song? It's not as popular as it was over 100 years ago. <laughs> I bet you know the tune. John Brown's body goes a-moldering in the grave. It's kind of morbid. <laughs> moldering means rotting. <laughs> John Brown's body goes a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body goes a-moldering in the grave. But his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, alleluia. Glory, glory, alleluia. Glory, glory, alleluia. His soul goes marching on. So you've heard the tune, right? You know the tune. They changed the words a little while later. There's a second verse that says, The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down on the grave of old John Brown. That's the song they sang that day. That's what 3,000 schoolchildren are singing as they march around that cemetery. It wasn't about money, but it certainly was a song commemorating the legacy of John Brown. If you know who John Brown is in history, the, called the hero of Harper's Ferry, was an abolitionist uh, who ends up getting executed by the state of Virginia uh, for a raid to try to free slaves. In Charleston that day, the lives of these unnamed fallen soldiers are connected with a larger story. They're connected with the story of John Brown. Even though their names aren't known, even though they're moved from a mass grave into this cemetery, they're still connected with that larger story. And that ultimate sacrifice that they give 
becomes part of their larger legacy. And it's one that gets sung about by the heirs of their generous gift. They sing of the giving of these people's lives. Do your life, does your life, does my life, do our lives invite that kind of response? Again, the story that we're writing for our lives today. Does it invite that response or what the author of Hebrews 11 says when it speaks of Abel? Do our lives by faith still speak even though we're dead? Will we have that kind of legacy? Will we have that kind of impact? We turn back to Paul. Do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, and you'll have lived a generous life. Set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, and you'll enjoy a generous legacy. And when you do, when you live that way, when your life writes that story, the crowd, or again to borrow from Hebrews, the cloud of witnesses will have reason to sing. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this, this morning as we gather here in this space on a day of great celebration where you brought your people back together in person. And Lord, we are so grateful for this provision that you've given to us that we might enjoy fellowship, that we might enjoy worshiping together in song, in prayer, and pondering your word. But now, Lord, as we turn our attention uh, to where you have been so generous to us as we prepare to gather around a table that speaks to that, I pray, Lord, that you continue to speak into our hearts and show us places where we might live the generous life, that we might leave a lasting legacy that would ripple on through eternity, one that sings of your great provision to us and our faithful response to you.